I'm Mel Kettle, and you're listening to This Connected Life, the show where connected leaders share their experience, values, and strategies that have helped them become more connectable so they achieve success in life and business. Hello again, everyone. You're listening to This Connected Life, and I'm your host, Mel Kettle. I have a guest again today, and today my guest is the beautiful Michelle Cox. Michelle has over 25 years of leadership experience, including being a global CEO, a chief operating officer, and currently is a board director. She's also owned and founded a number of different companies. And she's been an elite athlete, and she's overcome cervical cancer. So lots of interesting things that we're going to talk about today. Michelle's passionate about living an unconventional life and helping others to live a life that's right for them. And she's just launched a fabulous book series called the Wabi Sabi series. And we are definitely going to talk about those because they're short little nonfiction impactful books that are centered around topics we don't normally talk about. So stay tuned to hear more. Welcome, Michelle. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mel. Lovely introduction from you. It's fabulous to be here. Well, I'll just say to people as well that we are sitting in Michelle's hotel room at the spectacular Fantuzzi Hotel in Brisbane. And when she told me she was staying here, I was very excited because I love the art series hotels and I've not been to this one yet. Yeah, it's stunning. It's actually, uh, it doesn't disappoint, let me say. And just simply designed. I love things that are just really clever in their design. So yeah, lovely hotel. Definitely recommend it. Are the beds comfy? Yeah, very. (laughs) The pillows? (laughs) We had a big, um, big event yesterday, the charity event that we were both at. So I had a very good sleep and you'll have to excuse my slightly croaky voice, but it's from a cold rather than a big night. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So my first question I like to always ask is what does connection mean to you? Well, in short, I guess, Mel, connection means everything to me. I feel that unless I am connected either with the universe and the uh, world around me and the people in which uh, come in and out of my life, I'm not happy, I guess. I don't feel fulfilled. So connection's a big part of who I am in my life and I strive a lot to meet a lot of uh, incredible people and have you know a connection with them. That's a big part of me being a recipe, really friendly and I love to meet people, but it, it's a real part of that connection element and learning about people and understanding what makes them tick and how they live their lives. I love that. Although I love all of my guest responses to connection because there's so many different ways that we connect with each other and we all have different meanings. We met at the Space Series Conference in May in Byron Bay. I can't believe it was nearly a year ago. That's just crazy. Um, And one of the things that I loved about space was that we all got to have, we all had an opportunity to get up and speak, run a workshop or lead a discussion around something that was important to us. Mm -hmm. And it didn't need to be anything to do with what we did with our day jobs. It could be something that was a passion. Can you just share what you spoke about? Because your topic resonated with me more than I think any other speaker there, which is why I was so excited when you said you'd love to be on my podcast. Thanks, Mel. That's so lovely to hear. It was a bit of a catalyst, that talk into where I am today of writing books, which I never in my wildest dreams imagined doing. I'm a very reluctant writer. We might come back into that later. But um, 
The Space Series non-conference, as they call it, it was more like a festival and it was uh, incredibly impactful to me as well. And there's probably 25 or so people that I met there out of the 200 or so that we are in contact constantly and we're doing a lot of things together in business. So in terms of the the stuff that happened over those three days and then what occurred after was pretty significant for me and continues to be. In terms of my talk, I don't know, I spent a lot of time thinking about what I would do for that talk because I had another uh, one in mind where I was going to talk about taking a creative break because I left my business in January, the business that I'd helped build and remained a shareholder but stepped out of the everyday operations. It wasn't actually my choice, so that's a whole other topic that I'm interested in writing about now, but it was a really good thing for me and I've gone on to find that actually it was perfect what happens to you sometimes. You're exactly where you're meant to be. And I was going to talk about taking a creative break and how good that is for you, but then decided actually... The topic that I'm very passionate about is around uh, it's okay for us to not have kids and kind of share that with people, both those that don't have kids and are contemplating that or dealing with, you know, the complexity around that in their life or those that do have children and judge others for um, if they don't. And so I did the, um, it was like a 20 minute talk. I framed it around, actually, this is my journey as a a woman who came from an Irish Catholic background. My grandfather was one of 11. I always thought that I was going to have kids. Then my first marriage kind of disintegrated because I wanted children and he didn't. So I sort of really talked through that journey. And then I put in some statistics of what's going on around us in the community and how things are changing in the world, especially with younger generation. And if you remember, I did a Q&A at the end, Mel, and the one of the younger members, I think she was maybe 22, and she said, well, I think it's ethically and uh, socially irresponsible to have children, which is a whole other interesting topic, right? So, yeah, it really resonated with a lot of people and um, was then the catalyst for me to write more and speak more about it. And then that's where the books came from. The reason it resonated with me is because I've never wanted to have children. And I knew from when I was a teenager that I didn't ever want to be a mother or have kids in any shape or form. Ironically, I then became a step parent. <laughs> it's a whole other story. Yeah. But um, I think our children experiences are different because I chose not to and you became child-free, childless, by not by choice. Yeah. And that resonated with me as well. But then when you started talking about some of the things that people, some of the names that people have called you without knowing your circumstance, I just thought, wow. So what were some, what are some of those things? What are some of those words and descriptions yeah, well, people have made? interesting thing, and maybe because I'm so good with kids and I just, I'm always gravitate towards children. Like if there's a group of us sitting around, I always have the kids sitting in my lap or, you know, I just love kids. So people see that. And so they just kind of assume that I would either have children or that I would have always wanted them. So I think that probably confuses people as well. And whereas mates that I've got that are like you, that never wanted children, don't feel particularly maternal and don't have like a real kind of love or um, desire to hang out with kids. I think that people probably make sense to them more. I don't know. So yeah, I've been judged pretty harshly and because I have had a relatively big career and, and been the CEO of some pretty big companies, um, I've been in front of those businesses as a career woman and people just said, oh, 
okay, so you chose career over kids. And so people make that assumption. The chapter in the book that I cover this stuff, it's called uh, Shit People Say. And I literally put in the verbatim quotes of what people have said to me over the years. And the one that probably resonates the most is a woman, and it was said twice to me actually by different people, but this woman said, oh, you're one of those kind of women. And I was like, what? Like, what are those kind of women? And she said, oh, those career women that, you know, it's just so much more important your career rather than family and you put that ahead of anything else. So, and she was so derogatory to me. And again, the only the two times ever that I've bitten back, most of the time I just think, I'm not going to say anything. You know, you don't know my story. That's fine. And I actually pity you because you look at a world through such a siloed lens rather than thinking that actually people have so much stuff and they live different lives for different reasons. And so this woman, I said to her, you know what? I actually had cancer and I nearly died and I'm very lucky to be here today. And how dare you judge me based on your lens because you think that people should, everyone should have kids and they're a bad person if they don't. And she was obviously shocked. And I said to her, think about that next time you say something to someone. Like it's none of your business and you just don't know someone's story. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I've got so many friends who are now in their late 40s or early 50s who would make amazing mothers and who desperately wanted to be a mother. But due to various circumstances, whether it's illness, not meeting the right person at the right time, or just other things that happened in their lives beyond their control, Mm. they haven't had a chance to become a parent. And my heart breaks for them, particularly when there's judgmental people, mostly women, some men, but mostly women, who say, that's so selfish not to have children. Mm. What were you thinking? Or worse, it's not too late. Like I have people say to me still when they say, do you have kids? And I say, no. And they look at me and say, you know, it's not too late. I'm like, well, it kind of is too late because I'm nearly 50. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I do. I do. But what makes you think that I want to? Mm. Like why? Why I'm actually quite great. I'll be very grateful. I'm postmenopausal. So the day that I realized I was postmenopausal, I'm like, great, now I can't become pregnant. And I was really happy about that because it removed a lot of the risk. And this is the stuff I talk about. It It's really around what's right for you. And that's my whole message with all these books. It's a, I want you to live a life and feel free and be more open to living a life that's absolutely right for you because no one else can tell you that. Even if you are brought up similar to your brothers and sisters or whatever, you are an individual. And not only should we be braver to step into that and live a life that's truer to us, we need to be more supportive with each other and support other people's decisions around living, you know, rather than judgment, there's so much judgment that we, you know, we all put on each other as well. So that was kind of the real key catalyst and exactly like what you just talked about there. My kind of key message was that, you know, we we know it's not cool to talk about religion, to ask you about your sexuality, to talk about your weight, to talk about, you know, all these other things that we go, yeah, that's socially unacceptable these days. But everyone still thinks it's okay to ask if, when, why, you know, about children. And my message is really simple. It's it's okay because people go, well, now I don't know what to say. Like, how do I say to someone? It's just a topic of conversation, like asking about the weather. And I'm like, it's okay to ask if I have kids. It's not okay to ask the questions after that to say, well, why didn't you have kids? Why don't you have kids? When are you going to have them? Why? Whatever. So it's just a bit of education piece in that in that regard. But like you, I had so many friends and still do that are either trying to have children, have done so many bouts of IVF that have failed, can't afford it, haven't met the right partner, you know, all those kind of other complexities. And the choice was made for me and they still have to deal with the shit that I've had to deal with. And I'm like, wow, 
we just need to change the conversation about this. Yeah. And I thought, so I need to be brave and put it out there a bit. And I think it's family members as well. Like my mother said yes. to me, when I met my partner, I was 34 and, you know, she didn't believe me when I said I didn't want to have children. And she said to me after we'd been together for about eight or nine months, she said, if you don't have a child with him, he will leave you. I'm like, do you not think we've had this conversation? Because we had a conversation on our first date about having children because he had a child already. And I said to him, do you want to have more? And he did say to me, you can't ask me that question on a first date. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, I can. <laughs> because if you want two or three more, then I can tell you right now I'm not the person for you mm -hmm. because I don't want any, but I could potentially be persuaded to have one if I met the right guy who desperately wanted one. And he said, no, I don't really care either way. So mm. I thought, okay, good. We can have another date then. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's, that's but I just thought how my mother's comment just mm. made me take a big step back. And I mm. thought, well, not all men want to be fathers. Mm. And he already is a father. And how do you know he wants another one? She yeah. never even mentioned it to him or discussed it with him. Mm. And it just really blew my mind that someone who I thought would know me that well would make such a comment. Yeah, it's not uncommon, unfortunately. And a lot of the people I interviewed whilst writing the book were, you know, some interesting stories that came out and that was quite common, the pressure that your family puts upon you. And and then even, you know, those that have had one child and decided they only want one child, the questions are still the same. It's like, well, when are you having another? And why? Don't, and you need to have more than one. So it's like, whoa. But I just raise a number of points in the book. So it's not just for people that have had children or not or whatever. The the book's called uh, It's Okay Not to Have Children. And the subtitle is We Are More Than Our Parental Status. And that was, I was toying with actually making that the title of the book, but because that's fundamentally what it's about. It's, and this is, you know, stories that I bring in around my mates that have had amazing careers and, you know, the top of their game and then had children and then had to redefine themselves because they've lost their sense of identity. And so again, I think we need to know that we are more than just parents and step parents. And, you know, and that's not the only thing that's important in life. I mean, it's a very big part of it, but as we head into, you know, massive issues around climate change and challenging you know, space in that area, a number of the younger people I interviewed were, were really on that trajectory of saying, this is not ethically right. We've got more than 8 billion people in the world already and the, the planet can't sustain us as it is. So interesting. But, and it comes back, I guess, full circle to your point about connection. You know, writing these books is the whole premise. They're called the Wabi Sabi series, which is around embracing imperfection. But the whole premise for me is around having conversations about things that we don't often talk about. Yeah. And just on that, your other two books, the second one that you wrote is called Death Doesn't Have to Be Morbid. Mm. And I love that topic. And I also loved Doctors Are Not Gods. So death does not have to be morbid. Like That's something that fascinates me as well, because yeah. I until probably until my mum and dad died about 10 years ago death terrified me mm. and then it was I just once they both passed away it was like this giant pressure or this fear just lifted off me and I no longer think of death as a scary thing and I find that fascinating I find death fascinating and people's reactions to it and relationship with it yeah so tell me why about that book yeah thanks Mel that equally and that's probably you know you hit the nail on the head of how I feel about it. I've had to, I've endured a lot of death in my life and from a very young age as well. And so I write that at, well, it was interesting. I literally started writing the book and thought, whoa, I'm 47. Like I'm the exact age that my mother died and she died, you know, 22 years ago. And, um, 
that was pretty profound for me to sit there and think, well, this was it for her. And she had four kids and yeah, like that she had so much more to do in her life. And I was like, well, I just can't imagine this being it. And so that was part of the fear, getting over that fear of like, I'm writing stuff that's really personal. I've never put anything out like that before. And thinking, oh, should I do it? Should I not? And so then I'd sat there and thought, well, actually I could be dead tomorrow. So this is not, this is not going to kill me. It'll make me grow and I'll learn a ton from the process. And Hopefully I'll get to have some interesting conversations and make an impact on people as I go. So I've been to over 28 funerals. Oh, my God. Two of them (laughs) I've arranged and I've faced my own mortality. Obviously having cervical cancer, I nearly died. And so I use death and the premise of we can't avoid it. It's all going to happen. We're all going to die someday. And I use it as a driver rather than, as you said, like a lot of people have a fear about it. So I'm acutely aware that it's something obviously I don't want it to happen anytime soon, but it's going to happen. And so how do I actually reframe it to take the power back? And so for me, I use that mortality factor as a driver for me to literally not wait until I'm sick and old to do a bucket list to actually do it now, do the things you want to do. Yeah, I love that. I had a friend, Emma, who had a stage four melanoma when she was 21 and she died when she was 25 and she was given about six months to live when she was 21. And so one of the things she did in that time was get married and just live the high life. She was on an immunotherapy system, so she didn't feel ill. She felt quite well considering. And so she and the husband just lived the best lives that they could with what they thought she had left. Mm -hmm. And then she got onto this trial and her life was prolonged and she looked in the mirror one day and went, oh, my God, I've just gained all this weight because I've been shoving every delicious piece of food into my mouth and not exercising and I might have a few years of life left. So she and Serge decided that they'd start living rather than waiting for her to die. And she started a business. Oh, she's amazing. She started a business. She started fundraising for one of the melanoma charities and just did so many incredible things knowing that she had limited time, not knowing what that limit looked like because it had been extended. But that was just such a lesson to so many people whose lives she touched that life is for living. And even if you don't know when you're going to die, Mm. and I look at friends of mine who were healthy and alive one day and dead the next and just think, you don't know. And so what? don't wait. Mm. It's a great lesson. Don't wait. Yeah. Yeah. Because everyone goes, life's short, life's short. I'm like, yeah, Yeah. but I live that. You just say that shit like flippantly and then you go and complain about some minute thing that actually doesn't really matter and you get so wound up about it. I'm like, get some perspective. And so I'm constantly reminding people that are around me about that stuff to kind of like flip them down and go, you know, and in business as well, like when we're stressing about a client or something's gone wrong or whatever in work and you're like, it's not heart surgery. Let's get back to perspective, especially in you know, marketing comms. It's like we're doing PR, not ER. You know, it's like, like let's get it back. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's I live that every day, Mel, to me. And it's it helps when I have that kind of, ooh, this is a bit scary. What's going to happen? Should I do it? Should I not? I'm like, let's get some perspective. And could I die from doing this? No. Well, could I die tomorrow? Yes would you regret it? And so I do love that whole no regrets as well. And yeah, it's interesting. I talk about in that book, one about dying fast or slow, having the opportunity if you have a prolonged illness and you know that you're going to be sick for a while and you have the opportunity to do all the things you want to do and reconcile with the people that you may need to, or fast and furious, you know, which, and interestingly, my mum and dad died 
you know, my mum was sick for 18 months. She had breast cancer and I never thought she was going to die. And so I was kind of shocked right to the end, even though she was incredibly sick. And then my dad dropped dead when I was in Russia for work and he had a massive heart attack, died on the spot. And his mate, who's a paramedic, was right next to him. So he had every chance in terms of being revived and was dead the moment he hit the ground. And so I really talked through those, the pros and cons for each. And, you know, to them, obviously you don't always have a choice, but um, everyone says, well, what would you want? I'm like fast and furious every day. (laughs) I just want to go. And the way I, you know, the only negative around that is if you have unfinished business. So I live my life every day to be true to that, to kind of go, I have no unfinished business. There's no one in my life that I love and adore that doesn't know that. I tell them all the time. There's no stuff that, you know, I want to reconcile with anyone that I haven't already done. And there's things that I still want to do in life, of course. You can't do everything. But I've done most of the stuff I'd want to do today if this was it. And I think it's a really good way to live your life. Mm. Did you find when your parents died that completely shifted your priorities with what you believed was important to you? Yeah, I guess. I think probably because I dealt with, like, so I have no grandparents either. And so I'm called what's what, what's known as an adult orphan. And I've lost a lot of aunts and uncles. So yeah, it's like we don't have a lot of family left. And so I think I've just grown up always being acutely aware about what's important anyway. And mum, you know, mum passing obviously was a massive thing. I was 27. So it's pretty influential time for a woman. And, you know, really grappling with that, that you know, in my first marriage, wanting to have children and trying to work through all that. But I always felt, you know, anytime I feel sorry for myself, <laughs> I have a moment of that. I always really quickly think about those that are less fortunate than me. I have an amazing life. I've done incredible things. I feel very lucky, even though I've had a lot of shit happen to me. I have a way of reframing that and I'm eternally optimistic. You know, that's my modus operandi, I guess. So um, I try and look at things a bit differently. And in that case, my brother and sister, younger ones were 10 and 12 years younger than me. So I'd had 10 years, 12 years longer with mum than they had. And that was how I reconciled with that a bit and helped them through that time. But it did bring us all closer. And really, again, at that point about telling each other, we loved, you know, we loved each other more and yeah, probably brought in my mates and, you know, letting my guard down with my friends a lot more as well. And, not trying to be perfect all the time to say, actually, I do stuff up and I do dumb things as well and let's share that together. So, yeah, just I think it's a continual thing for me. What you said about not feeling sorry for yourself, I've got a friend, another friend who had a brain tumour and didn't have a long, long time to live and I remember saying to her one day, you're always so happy and you're always so upbeat and positive even though you've got all this crap happening and she said, I'm not always. She said, I give myself 10 minutes a day to feel sorry for myself and have a pity party. And I scream and I cry and I throw things and I set an alarm. And when the alarm goes off at the end of that 10 minutes, that's it for the day. Because I don't want to be that person who's got brain cancer. I don't want to be that person who's feeling sorry for herself. I want to be that person who's embracing life. Mm. And I just remember her telling me that and thinking, far out so many of us can learn so much from that because so many of us have pity parties when we really don't need to it's just the most pathetic things that we feel sorry for ourselves over and so and so set a time limit Mm. and go radio that's it for the day and maybe i can have another 10 minute pity party tomorrow but hopefully i won't need to it's a beautiful way to love that yeah um, yeah and i think just reminding 
people that I know in life that do get a bit tangled up in stuff. I'm like, okay, let's just bring it back. And so death, to me, we should talk about it more. We should talk about dying, what it means to us, how we feel about it, because if we did, we'd probably live a far more fulfilled life is my message with that. And I think we'd also be a lot more supportive as well when our friends and loved ones are going through a grieving period, because in Australia in particular, I don't think we know how to deal with other people's grief mm. at all well. And I just know from my experiences, the number of people who said nothing to me when my mum and dad died and when other people I've loved have died. And I just think, I know you know, so why have you not acknowledged it? Mm. And I think maybe it's their fear of mortality or... Yeah, it's something I, I really did a lot of research and a lot of discussion with people about because I experienced the same. And what I found was that people do care and they are incredibly distraught by your pain and what you're going through. They just don't know what to say. And for many of my girlfriends, and I write that in, in that book as well, and one of my dearest friends, we've been mates for like 30 years, she rang me afterwards and she was so distraught after reading the book. And she said, I always felt that we couldn't support you and we didn't get upset talking about this. Because she said, we just, you know, you said it right. She said, we just didn't know what to say. And still today, she has both her parents, all her grandparents. And whereas I've lost everyone, which mm. is a whole other thing. Because I'm like, why is that? That, you know, it seems so unfair. But um, she said the way you captured that and the way you wrote about it was so beautiful. But she said, it really helped me understand what you went through. And we were all there for you, but we just didn't know what to say. Because we were just so heartbroken. And um, I said, that's enough. I knew that. And you know, as I've learned over the years and that's, you know, the other part of the book is around helping people to help those that are grieving and to help them through it and to give you some real tools in that regard. And you're not, you're never going to know what to say. You're never going to say the right thing just to let people know you're there. That's the thing. Just reach out and go, Hey Mel, I feel so sorry. Like I'm so sad for your loss. I don't know what to say. I can't clearly bring them back because that's all I want to do. But I'm here for you. Anything you need from me, you know. And that's the other thing. People go, what can I do to help? What can I? And you're like, I don't know because I'm in such a world of pain at the moment. I can't even think about the fact if you can do my dishes or get me some shopping or look after my kids or whatever. So that's the other side is actually giving people some tools to say these are some things that you can help. My cousin gave me some great advice the day after mum died. She said, people are going to ask you what they can do to help. Make a list. And so I made a list with my father and my brother. And then whenever anybody rang up and said, I'd love to help, let me know how I can help. I'd just say, here's three things on our list. Beautiful. Pick one. Yeah. And one poor woman <laughs> was responsible for organizing the wake. And another woman was responsible for organizing some other big thing. And I just thought you asked. Yeah. And they were both a bit shocked, I think, that I had jobs for them but I thought if you don't mean it don't ask yeah oh no because I'm going to give you something tangible that's beautiful yeah interesting actually um another space cadet of ours on the, from the series Jackie Bloom have you seen her latest um, oh no literally has just launched her new business and project it's called um Mel's just handing me tissues because I'm literally <laughs> sitting here crying <laughs> Thank you. Oh, it's real. It's a real podcast. <laughs> Thanks, darling. Yeah, that was interesting. That brought out emotion. Yeah, Jackie has started, and so she's featuring my books. That's how I know about it. It's called The Helping Hub. 
And it's exactly for that reason of people going through tough times or ways that, you know, someone reaches out to help. And this is a website that provides so many things. And it's like, it might be a, you know, a new baby's come on board or a, a, uh, you know, you're dealing with someone passing away or, you know, just you've had an operation and you're, you know, can't walk around too much. You're in crutches or whatever, whatever it is. So it has particular topics of ways that you can assist. And I think it's going to be amazing. I love that. Such an, a unique option, right? And practical. Yeah. 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 I love that. I just want to go back a moment. A few minutes ago, you described yourself as an eternal optimist. Tell me about that. And tell me about it in terms of how can people be more optimistic? Because there's a lot of crap happening in the world at the moment, and it's pretty easy to get mired in thinking, what's the future look like? And the news is always negative, And what can I do, you know, to help me feel better, but to help the people around us feel more positive? Yeah, it's a beautiful question. And I think I probably touched on it a little bit before around that reframing that life is short. And so I learned that as it from a young age. I, you know, I'm going to get very deep here, but I fun, I've done a lot of regression therapy and I fundamentally believe in past lives. And so I'm an old soul and I know I've been around a bit before. So I kind of try and tap into that as much as I can. I'm a pragmatist. I'm an absolute, I'm the, you know, conglomerate of my both my parents so my dad um, was an engineer and my mum was an artist so essentially I'm a mix of the two of them interesting and whilst I've done a lot of traveling and that's probably the other part of you know feeling in terms of actually experiencing life and cultures and I feel that you should travel more and more because it helps you to actually realize how lucky you are especially as Australians and how we have amazingly healthy and essentially safe lives then uh, you travel to you know remote and third world countries and truly appreciate how much we've got in life but I've had so many people in those third world countries teach me so much stuff you know they have nothing and yet they're the happiest people in the world and also they're so generous you know they have nothing and yet they're the first people to give you things and help you out as well which used to just floor me in my um, travels but in particular places like I've been Machu Picchu Himalayas and Nepal and I would always meet these old tribal elders and they would gravitate towards me and I'd be like, oh, they're coming, I know they're coming. <laughs> <laughs> and they, you know, I couldn't obviously speak their language but we're talking together and then the translator's like, they, you're an old soul. I'm like, yes, I know, people keep telling me but I don't want to believe in it. <laughs> so it took me a long time to kind of really tap into that and then to start to see mediums and things as well to kind of draw that out. So that's interesting. So the premise around optimism you know, I feel like I'm here for a good time, not a long time. I'm here to learn. I'm here to just learn from so many others. And that's probably my whole connection piece around always trying to learn from like, well, how do you do that? How do you hack life? What are the things you do? And, you know, I'm inquisitive. I'm a curious soul as well. So I'm always asking people questions, but I just choose to be happy. And I don't know if you know the work of Gabby Bernstein, you know, that whole premise, she's like, if you want to be happy, stop being sad. And it sounds so dumb, but it's actually that simple. You know, you can wallow, as you said before, in your pity party, or you can choose today to wake up and go, actually, I'm going to have a bloody good day. And no matter what the world throws at me and the universe decides going to happen to me today and what lessons I'm going to learn, I'm going to make the most and I'm going to be optimistic. So it's an attitude. And I think, again, it leans into my whole philosophy of life is it actually doesn't matter what happens to you. It's absolutely the way you deal with it. 
Absolutely agree. And, you know, when I was younger, I, my friends would often call me Pollyanna because I would see the good in everything. And even, you know, in the worst times of life, there's been, I've been able to see the positive that has come out of some of those things, like, you know, closer relationships with people or other positive things that have happened. And I think one of my friends said, you need a t-shirt that says choose happy because I wake up in the morning as well. And I just autumn, I don't even have to make that conscious thought now. I just think it's going to be a great day and I'm going to be happy. And yeah, okay, I might be a bit cranky or grumpy, especially if I don't get enough sleep for parts of the day, but that's a state of mind. And why can't we all choose to be happy and kind and generous and real? Absolutely. Yeah. Why can't we? But not fake happy, like no. not, not Instagram fake happy. Yeah, have a nice day. Just, I was like, can't understand. I'm like, and then when people say that to you, I just look at them and go, are you having a nice day? And they're kind of like shocked or like, because it's just. Ooh, you know, I like that. Yeah. And then it's like, but are you? Like, what, well, what can you do? I hate that sort of when people are just on the treadmill and say shit for no reason. Especially when they say it without smiling. You can yeah. tell when someone says it because they're genuinely having yeah. a good day. And mm. you can tell when someone says it because they've been trained to. Correct. And it's the rote yes. response. Yeah. yeah. Super annoying. Yeah. Regression therapy. What does that involve? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's such a funny topic. <laughs> I actually, I breezed over this in the book about death and I touched on it and my editor came back. She's like, what's this? I want to hear more about it. She's like, you've teased me. You know, it's like you wrote this sort of element. She's like, you need to go deeper into this. I was like, whoa, what, what's book, going book on? Book four? Book four? Oh, no. So I talk, I, I went, I had to rewrite that piece because she was like, nah, you're not getting away with that. And my hesitance is because people think you're bonkers. <laughs> and as a woman in business and in the corporate world, and I sit on a few boards and you work with numbers of people that are relatively conservative. So it's interesting over dinner discussions over the years, when I bring it up, some people go, oh my God, and they're so in. Other people, they literally glaze over and think that you've grown two heads and I think, you know, <laughs> completely don't agree with it, whatever. And so my mum said she was much more sort of artistic and we thought she was very spiritual. Interestingly, it turns out mum was a very young soul. And so my mum was always desperately wanting to learn more about the afterlife and totally believed in past lives and things. And it comes a lot of the research and work and discussions I've had with people, obviously from multiple other kind of religious faiths and stuff, but had conversations with people in places like Nepal, the Himalayas, as I said, Machu Picchu, South America, India, all these kind of incredible elders that I've talked about this sort of stuff over the years. And it is believed that when we go through different lives, your eyes travel with you. So I always challenge people, I go, well, where do you think the saying um, I, your eyes are the windows to your soul. What do you think? Have you ever thought about where that comes from? Or if you see a brand new little baby and you look at their eyes and you're like, oh, this looks like a little old man, not a three-month baby. Or you see a 80-year-old man and he's just got twinkles in his eyes. He looks like a little kid. And that's that whole kind of premise, especially in Hindu beliefs. So um, my mum grew up, you know, well, I grew up with my mum going. She used to see a, um, a famous white witch in Melbourne, Kerry Culkins. used to go to her all the time. All these interesting things, cards read or hand, palms done, whatever. My dad was an atheist and completely just never gave any insight at all into this stuff. But what had happened and trans transpired, I guess, over the years was that um, he was incredibly spiritual. And the work I've done with mediums and regression therapy, it turns out that your mum was a young soul and my dad was like so worldly in that space and such a an old kind of 
incredible soul in that. And I learned so much from him about diversity and embracing different religions, different cultures, different people in life. We grew up with a really diverse bunch of people surrounded by us in our environment because my parents were so open to that. So circling back to regression therapy, I went to a seminar. It was a three-day weekend. Um, my husband thought I joined a cult and I'd never <laughs> cried so much in my life. And it turned out it was actually the – I'd booked it about seven, eight months in advance because it was the only – it only ran once a year. And it turned out to be the weekend that was the anniversary of my dad's passing the first year. So, again, that was, like, weird. And it was called Life, Death and Purpose. And I don't know whether the course runs anymore. This was, a, you know, probably 11, 12 years ago. And uh, it was game-changing for me. And the guy starts off, remember his name was Richard, and he's quite significant in this space. And he started off the session saying, all of you here have had hundreds and hundreds of previous lives. And, and I said, you know, came straight from work, power suit on, sat with my arms crossed at the back of the room going, this is a load of shit. Like, what am I doing here? <laughs> and, so, and as I said before, I'm a classic, like I'm a pragmatist, the absolute mold of the two, and I'm incredibly spiritual. And so I kind of literally float between those in life and work when I'm going to be on and sitting around a board table when people would think this is woo-woo stuff. Um, I never mentioned it to anyone. And then, you know, in my search for meaning with life and me kind of dealing with some of the elements, I found that past life aggression stuff has been incredible for me. So it's a deep meditative sort of state. And it's where if you from a scientific element, where you get into such deep meditation, that you're starting to slow your brain waves down. So it's like a delta, gamma, theta state. And it's not dissimilar to when you're having a deep like REM sleep. So when you get into dream state and um, yeah, there's all those kind of a lot of research around that if you're interested in that space. In some cases, you're sitting with a therapist. It's You can do it yourself and be guided by um, there's a lot of stuff that you can do online now. I would recommend to see a person that is reputable in this space as well that you does that they do do re regression therapy because there are some danger elements with it, especially if you're bringing up stuff that you don't know how to deal with as well. So I'd recommend you do it with a therapist. And they just talk you through. And so when the first time I did it, I was laying flat on the ground and I could feel like I just feel like you sink. You're in such a relaxed state that your body sinks, literally molds into the earth. But my head was, it was almost like sand. I was buried in sand. And I knew I could lift my arms and legs if I wanted to, but that was so heavy. It's just like, oh, that's the sensation. They talk you through the meditative state and then, you know, you're in whatever world that you've gone back to, the life. And I can only describe it by saying that it looks like you are um, it's a camera in the corner of the room and you're watching a movie. You can move the camera around and that's you watching and zoom in and out. It's almost like drone stuff that you see now. And you have to go around and you're like, there's a person and look into their eyes. And the moment you look into their eyes, you're like, oh yeah, I know who that is. Wow. This is a male that's, you know, African American, but actually I know that this is Mel in this life wow. because I recognize you. And so it's like it's phenomenal. I'm getting goosebumps even talking about it now. I'm getting goosebumps listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if people think it's wacky and I know that, but if once you try it and it happens to you, then you're like, whoa. And so what you do is you start to look around for things and you look for what year you're in and look at your clothes and anything that can sort of give a telltale sign. So the first, like that weekend, the most profound life, I had um, eight or nine lives that had come out. And when we came out of the state, you weren't allowed to talk to anyone. You had to just write what you saw. So I have like, you know, all this stuff that sort of talks about these past lives I'd had. 
And that was my first time I'd done. I've done it several times since. But the most profound life for that first experience was in 1724, and I was a male architect living in Florence. And we'd had a major event, which was uh, like flu had come through and killed many of my friends and workers and different things like that. And so there were all these sort of things. And now with Google, then you go back and look at stuff and see what it's like the weirdest thing. So it helped me to understand, like I know fundamentally I've been a male more than I've been a female. And that helped because I'm such a tomboy. Like I've never been, you know, gender specific, sat on boards now for 20 years, mostly the only female, raced motorbikes, flew planes, like anything that girls weren't allowed to do all through my life. Um, I've always gone, why can't girls do that? And, you know, my dad was such a supporter and saying, so he's spiritually aligned. He's like, yeah, you can play cricket. I'm like, well, the teacher won't let me play at school. It's like, right. Come up. So why can't you play cricket? Well, it's a boy sport. No, it's not. Yeah. So this is, you know, from a young age. So, yeah, it helped me to understand the way I am about things in this life. So that element was really good for me. And the other side was that I always was a bit harsh around why I tend to do things and learn stuff and master it and then I move on. And I used to kind of, you know, kick myself a bit with that to say, why are you so fickle? why can't you just stay the course of something and do it? But what regression therapy helped me to understand was that I just needed to master it. It was something I'd never done before and this was new in this life. And once I've mastered it, that's good. I've learned it. Great. Move on. So that's kind of helped me to stop being so harsh on myself in that sort of element. Oh, that's so interesting. I now want to find out so much more. Yeah. Well, a great book about that. is called Many Lives, Many Masters. It's is about a clinical uh, psychiatrist in the States who um, had this patient who he dealt with for years and she had so many debilitating fears, like literally couldn't sleep at night, couldn't deal with so much stuff and he tried everything and that regression therapy was his last kind of resort. And this is and he, with her permission, he recorded the stuff and then wrote this book and it was game changing. And so it helped me to understand actually, oh, it's not just, you know, fluffy kind of, like weird stuff. There is other stories around it. And I read the books and heard her talk about her experiences. It was exactly mine, like how I kind of remember stuff and things as well. That's a really nice segue because unfortunately we're out of time. Talk to your day, Mel. This is lovely. I know. We might have to do a second one in a year or so and see where you're at with the Wabi Sabi series and other things happening in your world. But you've mentioned that Many Lives, Many Masters book. Are there any other books that have or podcasts that have had a big impact on you in any way? Oh, I listen to podcasts all the time, constantly. Wow. Which one am I going to pick today? Um, well, I know, interesting, because I was never a fan of Oprah and never watched her show and stuff, but her Super Soul series is actually been really interesting for me and she has such a an incredibly array of guests. So that's one I've been consistently going back to. Rich Roll, who is a ultra-athlete, vegan, like really changed his life around, sort of had a, you know, classic crisis at 48 or 49 or something lawyer and then completely flipped his life and he has some amazing guests and one of my more uh, favorite interviews are when he speaks to dr zach bush and he's um a triple certified physician who's done a lot of work in the cancer space but has really opened up my eyes for gut health and i've done a lot of sort of research in that space because we've had challenges over the years so he's done three interviews one literally i was listening to yesterday the latest one which is 
very out there, but um, that's always really interesting. You're the second person to mention Dr. Zach Bush to me in the right. last week. Interesting. Yeah, yeah so there's a sign. <laughs> he's, he's a bit like Michael Mosley, you know, and yeah. everyone sort of knows him from the like the 800 or whatever diet, but his um, research in this space is really interesting. Um, books, I, um, yeah, again, a real absolute voracious reader these days. Anything from Brene Brown, I've read all her books, just that whole vulnerability piece and stepping into it. So, you know, she's taught me a lot in those, like, you know, her dare to lead and all those kind of elements. But one of the things I love around dealing with critics and especially having putting myself out there with books and getting interviewed and stuff is if you're not in the arena, you don't get to play. Like, so don't sit from the sidelines and call, you know, sling shit at me. I'm going to ignore you. And that's the way she deals with, you know, like trolls online or critics. It was really good advice actually. Um, yeah, I love that yeah. quote. I, I remember that often when people criticise things that I say and do who are just armchair critics exactly. with, or keyboard warriors with no understanding of what it takes to put yourself out there mm. because they just hide in the shadows. Yes. Yeah, they don't get to play. No. Like, So why do we buy into that? Why do we even give them the airspace? So, yeah, it's really good. Um, I love to challenge my thinking, I guess. So as a sort of being a pragmatist that's sort of math science-based and then trying to step into a spiritual world over years, I read stuff that I go, wow, this is wacky as, but it's good to get you thinking about things differently. And that's great for our continual learning and being better humans and understanding other people. Absolutely. Are you reading anything now? Yeah, I'm actually, funnily enough, I'm reading, <laughs> I'm a person that has five books on the go at once, I was trying to think, which, which I do too. To tell you. <laughs> and that, so that was why I wrote my books that are two-hour reads. They're called commuter reads because I read a few chapters and then I kind of get bored, but I'm just like, okay, I need a break from that. So That's just, a Sydney commute, by the way, yeah. not a Brisbane commute. <laughs> and not a work-from-home commute where my commute's 50 meters. <laughs> <laughs> fair call fair call no I like that it's um yeah it does uh make a difference with you having a um a bit of space but the books I um am finding that I well, one well so this is a if I look at my um sort of list at the moment uh gut by oh, uh, Julia is it Julia Elders I think or, yeah, yeah yeah I think so yeah and she's really funny so as a you know medical specialist and she taught the way the language and the way she you know dumbs it all down for us it's, it makes it entertaining a book I've just gone back to which I read many many years ago is Rich Dad Poor Dad oh, that's and, a great book as we're talking so Robert Kiyosaki and it was just a good to have some reminders about the way you deal with your finances and being a bit smarter about that stuff so I kind of love that and then I randomly like I've had so many mates that have written books that I read all their books and support them and they've been incredible one um future fit a friend Andrea Clark it's about the future of work and um it you know that's really interesting she actually won the best business book of the year 2019 oh, I knew I'd heard of that book yeah yeah fabulous read um and she was actually one of my beta readers for my first uh manuscript draft because I was like you're ruthless you're an ex-journo <laughs> like you're gonna tell me if this is crap <laughs> so she was really good and um yeah, so that I read a real array of stuff. I've just finished Michelle Obama's book and Melinda Gates' book, actually, about the moment of lift. Yeah, so I love that book. Love all that sort of stuff. I mean, and then I read real random stuff, you know, that was in the spiritual sense. So anyway, there's a, well, enough. 
Thank you so much for your time and conversation. I've loved this conversation and I'm going to look up for some regression therapy and see how I can have some of that done to me because that fascinates me. Where can people find you if they want to know more? And more importantly, where can people find the Wabi Sabi series? Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. It's been so fun to chat. Thanks very much. I've I've loved it. So the books are available on your favourite online stores, so Amazon, Apple Books, Booktopia, all the rest of it, and they're in ebook form as well as hard copy. You can also get them uh, from our website, which is wabisabiseries.com. And I would love um, for people to follow on um, our journey on Instagram and Facebook book, which is the Wabi Sabi series. Cause yeah, that's kind of me putting little inspo quotes and talking about these sort of things that we're dealing with. Yeah. I'd love your support and also really love people's feedback. If you read the books, I'm really interested in what people think of them and sort of how they embrace imperfection in their lives a little bit more. Well, thank you so much. I'll pop all those links in the show notes. And my guest today has been Michelle Cox. Thank you again. Thanks Mel. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you really liked what you heard, please leave me a review on iTunes or a recommendation on LinkedIn or both. The show notes are all on the website, melkettle.com forward slash podcast. And I'd love you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You'll find me at Mel Kettle. See you next time and stay connected. Bye.